you and I are kind of alike, Miss Judith. Are we? How? You've the spirit in you, the same as I have in me. It's the fighting that counts. You've got to have action in your life, the same as I've got to have action in mine. We only live once, Miss Judith. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Rathlin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched Dark Victory, the fourth nominee in 1939? Fourth or fifth? I was going to say third or fourth. Third? I uh, I don't know. So one, one of them. them. God, it's just all information is seeping out of my head from this film. <laughs> it was the fourth. Okay, that makes sense. It is a movie starring Betty Davis and I guess co-starring. He's like a supporting actor. This is the most <laughs> frustrating thing, is that like Humphrey Bogart should be the other lead in this movie. And he's not! <laughs> Why did you keep giving me this vision of a movie where Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis just argue about a horse until they fuck? If you were going to give me this other <laughs> shitty fucking made-for-TV Lifetime movie that's interminable that I have to watch instead. Uh, yeah, that that's totally fair. Though, I will say, Ronald Reagan is in this movie, and he plays a dipshit who has no idea what is going on, but... <laughs> That for some reason, everyone around him likes him, which is completely inexplicable mm -hmm. given who he is in the movie. And I felt like that was really spot on. Yeah, it was great casting. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I genuinely actually enjoyed Ronald Reagan in this movie because he played this weird Baxter figure of a just like... <laughs> Hey, is this fun? I don't know. Let's keep doing it. Like, that's all he ever does through the whole movie. My my favorite thing about his character in this movie is that he is utterly forgettable and has no lasting concrete effect on the events of the plot. And I thought, if only that were also similar to him being president. Yeah. Ugh. I will say Ronald Reagan's performance does not stand the screen test of time because he's I, Ronald Reagan because I can't listen to his voice and think anything other than like you are a monster and we're still living with the fallout of your terrible fucking policies yeah that's totally fair I want to speed run this plot because I think I could do it in under a minute because there's nothing to this movie okay go okay so Betty Davis is a kind of rich society woman that has a horse and that horse was like birthed while her father was still alive and she thinks that horse can be a champion so she's arguing about this with Humphrey Bogart who is the first person we see in the movie and you're like wow this is going to be compelling I am into this relationship well fucking too bad because now you're in an episode <laughs> of House and that's actually the movie as George Brent plays this fucking doctor that like figures out that Betty Davis has a tumor in her brain and he operates on it and you think it's all good but actually the tumor is going to kill her in this way no tumor has ever worked ever where she's going to be just fine until the day she dies when she goes blind at the last minute and then falls over dead this is so tragic he can't tell her but he can date her? That seems medically dubious. <laughs> and the two of them get engaged, and then she figures out she's going to die by reading a note in his office and thinks he's fucking her out of pity and breaks off the engagement and starts getting drunk with Ronald Reagan, which is the most self-destructive thing you can do. 
Absolutely. But then figures out that, like, actually she's in a downward spiral when she almost makes out with Humphrey Bogart. Oh, the shame. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Then she gets married to the doctor. They go off and live in Vermont. And then the day comes where she tragically dies. She decides to keep that a secret from him just to make the death more tragic, I guess. And then splays out across her bed and dies. End of film. That was one minute and 47 seconds. And considering that there will be ums that I definitely end up editing out. (laughs) You may have actually nailed it. Oh, good. Good. I also, like, I put some time in for bits about the Humphrey Bogart movie I want to be watching that I probably could have cut, because Humphrey Bogart's plot in this movie is utterly unimportant and meaningless, and that pisses me off more than anything. And yet is actually the most compelling part of the whole movie, even though, like, it's not even a subplot. It's just a distraction. She has no chemistry with the Doctor whatsoever. It drags on. It's got the informant problem, where this is a, like, one-hour playhouse drama thing like this isn't a full movie it's not enough plot for a movie right it is better than the informant because betty davis is a better actor than our lead on the informant well yeah but it's worse because the ways they keep dragging out the plot are letting you see a better movie for five minutes and then going anyway back to you waiting for her to die for over an hour yeah it's not like they do a lot of song and dance before the diagnosis It's that the diagnosis comes 30 minutes into the movie, and the movie is 104 minutes long. It's absurd. Well, and the fact that there's no progression of this magical tumor that she has, where actually she's totally fine until literally the day she dies. Yeah. There's, like, very little that goes on, and this movie suffers... Or this movie actually only exists, and therefore we suffer, on the basis of one of your least favorite tropes, which is the, if people just fucking talked to each other about something, there would be no movie. Yeah. The fact that he doesn't tell her what her diagnosis is, is totally fucked up, and I'm pretty sure completely illegal. Because she's not married, and I understand that there was definitely a period of time where you could tell a husband and not the woman who was actually ill what her diagnosis is, and that's a whole different kind of fucked up, but, like, there's no patriarchal figure. Her dad is not alive, as we mentioned. She's not married. She doesn't have a fiancé. He's just not telling anyone except for her best friend, and they're both, like, 20-something social butterflies how is the best friend the more responsible person who should have this knowledge in the doctor's defense question mark it does seem like the jig was just kind of up like the friend just keeps needling him about it and so he tells her not because he's like you get to know but she doesn't but because like the friend figured it out and he told her to try and keep the secret so the friend wouldn't go to her about it. But to me, the thing that's just like, wait, what the fuck? Is when he starts dating her. Right. That's where I'm like, okay, even in the 30s, that has to be illegal. Their whole interaction begins with the doctor, like, I'm hanging up my medical practice and I'm going to go sit in the woods and look down a microscope. And I'm like, Didn't we see this movie already? Right. What is with all of the movies where, like, actually treating patients is the worst thing you can fucking do as a doctor, you coward? Like, every single time. I'm not doing any good because all I do is see patients. I have to look in a microscope. The only real doctoring there is. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah. He's like, I'm not even going to see this patient, but her family doctor insists to the point where he just showed up with her. Then he, like, runs a few very, like, not even tests. They're, like, reflex tests, essentially. And he's like, oh, well, never mind. This is a totally fascinating case that I now have to study in order to, I don't know, have self-fulfillment. Except that they do the surgery, and then he's like, yep, and you're totally fine, and definitely everything's okay. You want a date? Yeah. And he hates her at first. He's like, this isn't a description of symptoms, this is reading the gossip page. And she is seemingly just horny for a guy ordering her around for the first time in her life. Yeah. Which also I don't love. The only thing that seems to attract her to him is not like he is a brilliant doctor that saved her life, but he keeps telling her what to do. And she's like kind of secretly into that, which like, whatever, if you're secretly into that, that's fine. That can be your thing. But that's not really the most compelling romance to watch, you know? I have definitely seen that play out as a compelling romance because my favorite romantic comedy is Secretary. And that actually is the whole plot of that movie. Right. But like, that's getting deeper into the psychology of that thing instead of going like, yes, this is the natural way of the world. And then like, just fucking not caring about this is a weird dynamic or even acknowledging it as a dynamic at all. And I think part of it is, like you said, they have no chemistry. There's no sexiness in their interaction at all. I mean, also Humphrey Bogart is there and you have this fucking nebbish dude who has no personality other than I want to go to the woods and look in a microscope, which... You know, I'm I'm really over that fucking guy. <laughs> also, if you just want to date a handsome monster, Ronald Reagan is throwing himself at you all the time. <laughs> if that's what you're into. He's right there. Yeah. Yeah, but his voice is so awful. Yeah. I can't believe that he was a successful actor. Because I've always been like, well, you know, he was what, 70 or something when he was president. So your voice becomes weaker or whatever. But he sounds like a little boy. What's weird is I think he's supposed to be playing like a nice guy in this. That's the thing the screen test of time ruins. I always think of that SNL skit where he keeps doing the Ronald Reagan thing. And then whenever they go out of the room, he's like, all right, here's the deal. We got to get the weapons to the Contras. (laughs) I'm just always looking for what's the plan. Like, when's the turn going to happen? Right, right. And instead, he's just kind of the, like, nebbishy 30s quasi-Baxter we always talk about, who's just instantly like, listen, I've had a thing for her for forever, but if you want to date her, I guess I'll just leave and not fight about that at all. See you tomorrow, buddy. And walks out of the room, and you're like, I, okay? Then he shoots him? What are you doing, Reagan? (laughs) Right. When does the Reagan part come in? Right. Again, this is like Reagan's in five, maybe ten minutes of this movie. Maybe ten. Yeah, I honestly don't know his character's name or anything about his character other than that he has always had a thing for Betty Davis's character. Which is his last line. I guess you can kind of assume that to be true because he's like her drinking buddy when she goes on her I'm dying binge. But, like, literally the last thing he says is, I've always had a thing for her. I'm gonna go make breakfast. Do you see the clever thing I did to excuse myself? Goodbye. That's a goodbye from the movie. He never comes back. Yep. 
Now, Humphrey Bogart, on the other hand, oh, I want that movie. And I know that you never want to talk about the movie that this should have been instead, but I actually want to talk about the movie this should have been instead. Okay, yeah, I have nothing else to talk about about this movie, so, like, let's get into it. <laughs> cool, so <laughs> let's rewind to her talking to the stable hand, who is extremely handsome and very sexy because he is Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. About how she thinks that this horse can be a winner. And then she's faced with this health issue that is making her, like, see double. And she goes and gets treated for it by this doctor who then is like, yeah, you're totally fine. But secretly, she's not totally fine. But instead of, like, dating the doctor, she's gonna keep riding horses. Yeah. And then... She and the stable hand are going to get, like, really hot and heavy, but she's totally tortured by it because she's a wealthy socialite and he's just a stable hand, but also he's hot. Then they decide, like, yeah, they're just going to go for it. But what she doesn't know is the doctor didn't tell her that she's totally going to die. So in the big, like, last race or whatever, she suddenly goes blind, but the horse is so good that the horse makes the last jump and crosses the finish line, but she's dead on his back. And then Humphrey Bogart is really upset about it. The end. Okay, I like that a lot better, but let me give you a counterproposal. Uh, we start the movie off, as we do, with Humphrey Bogart being really pushy to the point that this young socialite played by Betty Davis just keeps saying she's going to fire him, but then just inexplicably, for some reason, it's because he's fucking Humphrey Bogart. Can't bring herself to do it. And then instead of the part where we just take a hard left turn into her having a tumor, that never fucking happens. Because what the <laughs> fuck is that plot line? I hate all of it. You have enough movie with just Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis having all of these arguments about class and horse breeding and what it is to, like, be a champion. And then the two of them, like, keep fucking while Ronald Reagan is like, hey, would anybody like to go drinking with me? <laughs> Jelly beans. And they're like, no. <laughs> and then the last plot line is just the love triangle between a, like, uncomplicated life with Ronald Reagan that you turn down to go keep fucking Humphrey Bogart. And then them working together lets the horse be a champion. And then you don't deal with the boring doctor at all. Because why is that in this film? Yeah, I like yours better. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I get that that's in this film so that the last literally 15 minutes of this can be an extended death scene for Betty Davis. But it is hilarious to me that all of the reviews are like, I know it's trying to tug on my heartstrings, but it's so good at it that it just works anyway. And it's like, no, it's not. She spends 15 minutes dying. That's absurd. Well, and not to mention that she doesn't even spend those 15 minutes dying. She spends those 15 minutes playing housewife in a way that is so clearly her playing housewife. She's like, isn't this a fun thing that I'm doing? Yeah. And her best friend comes to visit and the doctor's like, we literally never talk about the fact that she's going to die. That was the moment where I had the thought, you know, I've always thought that bucket lists are kind of like bullshit because like I'm just going to do the stuff that I want to do now. But if somebody told me that I had a few months to live or whatever, instead of making a list and trying to check everything off, I would just do whatever I felt like doing 
the moment I felt like doing it and acting completely on impulse at all times. And this is the most far from that that I can imagine, like even further from putting together a planned bucket list is I'm just going to pretend to have a normal life. And like, if you want to get into that being what she wants, then like actually examine that. By the way, what Susan just described isn't even in our 15 minute count yet. It's 15 minutes after she goes blind before she lays down on the bed and dies. Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's like the last 20 minutes of the film begins with her in an apron and telling their, of course, black maid to make pie or something in their gingham checked tablecloth eaten kitchen. 25, which I know because I was checking after every scene how much time was left in this movie, and I swear to God the number would go up sometimes. (laughs) It is an interminable last act of this film. The thing is, even stretching it out that much, it doesn't explore any of those moments. It just makes everything last a really long time. So there's just like these long scenes where she's like pretending not to be blind and then telling the husband to go away. And you're like, why? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this for 10 minutes? He gets called into some kind of special conference in New York because someone has figured out that his brain stuff is good science i don't know it's very the citadel in that way where like we don't actually know what the deal is at all but he's suddenly got this important meeting and they have to leave right now and she's like no no you just go without me because she's gone blind all of a sudden and there's a moment during that where she comes into the house and i'm like okay well how is she gonna pull this off she like runs up the stairs And I get it that when you live in a place, you sort of know things by feel. But if you've literally just become blind in the last minute and a half, it's like waking up in the middle of the night in the dark. You like feel your way to the bathroom. Like you know generally where the door is and where the walls are and that there's like a chair here or a sofa there or whatever. But you're not running to the bathroom. (laughs) I also, I have a question, which is because either way it's bad. But uh, my my sort of read was he eventually did figure out what was going on. Yeah, I think so. But then why did he leave? I get that she wants him to leave. Yes, I get the dream logic of like this tragic thing that's happening to us and get in the car. But I feel like five minutes into the car trip on my way to the train, I would have been like, wait a fucking second. My wife's going to die today. Like, turn the car fucking back around. Yeah, that is, uh, and and he didn't strike me as the kind of scientist who is portrayed as being so cold to anyone that even his wife dying, which he knows because he gave her that diagnosis, would be something where he's like, well, she's going to die anyway, so might as well get in the car. So I guess he didn't figure it out, but then he's a complete dipshit for not figuring it out, because she kind of keeps having to do all of this business about how obviously blind she is. And the movie kind of, like, tries to hide it from him, but, like, she keeps doing weird shit, where it's like, I'm supposed to believe this guy is on the verge of curing all cancer or whatever he's being sent to New York for, but he, like, couldn't put two and two together on this? Yeah, yeah, I mean, apparently. (sighs) Again, I don't get that kind of vibe from him from the rest of the movie, or, like, the absent-minded professor thing where he can be, like, super 
focused on one thing to the exclusion of all else. I mean, frankly, the Doctor's character that is developed in the very beginning of the movie where he's like, I'm just going to go sit in the woods with my microscope. He completely abandons that side of himself while he is courting her in a way where he's just like kind of this dadly figure. And it's weird, actually, because he, the actor, is only four years older than Betty Davis, but he feels a lot, like 20 years older. Oh, yeah. I was about to literally say 20. Yeah. He feels like he could be her dad. And the attraction that he confesses to have to her feels very much May-December of like, oh, but she's so full of life. He makes that comment or something like it so many times. We're like, oh, it's so tragic that this is going to happen to this young woman who is so lively and has, and she's so full of life and la 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 la. And I'm like, dude, you're not that much older than she is. And then you start getting into like, why does anyone keep any of this a secret at all, ever? Like, what is anyone doing? You can see all the wiring of everything to get to Betty Davis dying tragically so that it's just interminable. You're just sitting there waiting for her to die tragically. Like, and it just never comes. And then when it comes, it's not even particularly satisfying. It's just everybody just silently weeping to themselves. And then she falls over end of film. It sucks. I mean, it's not even that she lies down in bed and then everything fades to black, which I guess is supposed to be like, that's the end of her consciousness. Yeah, it's it's not great. I will say that Betty Davis gives a performance that is much better than the script that she is given, especially when she goes on her like drunk wild girl bender. I thought that was actually quite fun. I mean, the problem is that the climax of this movie is her moment in the stable with Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. And then it switches completely to this Donna Reed fantasy of her playing housewife in Vermont. And then it just goes on forever so the death can be extra tragic. It's just, it's bad. I agree that Betty Davis is a lot better in this than when last we saw her. But I did kind of think to myself, do I just hate Betty Davis? Yeah, see, I didn't hate her in this movie, but I thought that she was given such a ludicrous storyline that she had to play that it was really difficult for me to find it to be not realistic, but it was very difficult for me to suspend my disbelief that anyone would react in the way that she reacted to the news that she was going to die. I absolutely think she's the best thing in this movie, with the possible exception of Humphrey Bogart. But I do also think, like, I don't know, I didn't like her in Jezebel, and this was the first time I was like, kind of wish I had a Bingle Lancer card. (laughs) Like, I think I've made the right... I think I made the right call still pushing for Jezebel and not this, but, like, it's just so boring. There's just so little to it when you just go, like, I don't know, Betty Davis dies tragically of brain cancer. Like, that's it. That's the whole movie. Tragically and unrealistically of unrealistic brain cancer. It's just an hour and a half of trying to pile on reasons why it's tragic that she's dying 
to the point where the death can never possibly live up to it and doesn't and is just kind of boring like the rest of the movie because the rest of the movie's like wait for it 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 oh my god you're gonna cry wait for it oh man you are gonna cry wait for it it's happening oh my god you guys it's ha- you're gonna cry oh my god you're gonna cry and then she just lies down yeah and i didn't <laughs> okay I'm done. Yeah. I'm done now. I'm done with the film. So should we rate this movie? Yeah. Let's go ahead. Uh, I'm going to give it a three. I kind of want to go down to a two, but I am going to give it a three. I'll give it a three. I, mm, I'll give it a three. It's only, well, it is kind of racist toward the end with the maid. Well, because they don't give her a line. Yeah. And it's really just reaching, I think, that in the Wikipedia plot summary, it says, Her housekeeper, Martha, who has silently deduced the situation. How would we know that? Yeah, wait, is Martha... I I think Martha's not the black maid, but the other maid they have show up while she's walking up to her bedroom just so that somebody can be watching how tragic it all is. And so that, you know, it doesn't have to be an African-American that does that because we wouldn't want to give them any compelling part of the plot line. Oh, yeah, you're right. Martha is the other, is the white housekeeper. Yeah, so we just gave, we just did nothing there. Um, And like, yeah, three. I honestly, it's like, I think two, but I don't care about this movie enough to argue. So like, yeah, three. Like, let's just go with that number so we don't have to talk about this movie anymore. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, don't watch (sighs) this movie, obviously. Yeah, for sure don't. It's bad. It's... I cannot believe genuinely how positive all of the critic quotes about this movie are. Like, it says so much about the screen test of time and how far we've come that something this cloying and this rote and this fucking boring played as, like, grand The Notebook-esque a generation wept for their tragic love shit in 1939. It's absurd to me. Don't watch this movie. What uh, What should you watch instead? Well, 10 Things I Hate About You is a very good I- movie. <laughs> um, and it is tragic now in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um, no. Um, God, what, like, what weepy shit should you watch? Like, I'm not a weepy shit guy, generally speaking, but like, Titanic fucking works. Say what you will about Titanic, but that's a movie that fucking works. Yeah, but we're also going to watch that for the screen test of time. Right. What's a tearjerker movie that didn't get nominated for an Oscar that should have been nominated for an Oscar? Oh, I was going to say Awakenings, but it did. Oh, shit. Um, I'm not going to tell you to watch The Notebook, but I am going to tell you to read... The Fault in Our Stars. Someone reviewed The Notebook a few years ago And it is the funniest thing I have ever read in my entire life. And now I can't find it. You know what I'm going to tell you to watch? While Susan maybe tries to track that down. (laughs) I'm going to tell you to watch a movie from like a year and a half ago where Jughead from Riverdale played a kid who's got one of those immune deficiency diseases and fell in love with another kid with an immune deficiency disease so they can never touch each other. But they like fall in love in this like teen children's ward in a hospital. Just because I want you to tell me if that movie is any good. I haven't seen it. 
So I would like you to tell me if I should watch it. Okay, so Lindy West's review of The Notebook on Jezebel from 2014. Oh, right. Entitled, I just watched The Notebook and I'm here to ruin it for all of you, is amazing and you should read that instead of watching this movie. Those are your two suggestions versus this. I feel like I wanted to, like... Maybe start a new segment where we sort of contextualize stuff a bit more directly in film history, but I don't know what to fucking say about this movie besides, like, Ronald Reagan sure is in it, and it's weird he became president. <laughs> like, there's nothing really to say about the cinematography, there's nothing really to say about even any of the performances. We're going to see much better performances by both of our two quasi-leads. I mean, I think that this movie is the beginning of the sickbed drama. The, like, oh, this person finds out they only have so much time to live, and then we watch them take that time and then die, which does become, like, a pretty reliable tearjerker form, even though it's not your thing and it's not my thing. No, but I also do think, like, we've kind of had... I guess this is the first time that hasn't been in a period piece, right? Like, up until now, it's been in stuff like... God, what's the weird as hell one? You are really gonna have to narrow that down. Where they're like, the ghosts of the old generation of them are looking on from the weird plane, and then the dad is sworn a blood vendetta on the family line of him falling in love with her for all time. Oh, 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 smiling through. Smiling through. Smiling through has some of that, like, same energy. As this. Yeah, but like nobody was sick and dying. Uh, you're right. The older tragic female lead from the past just got shot to death. Yeah, during her wedding. Which isn't nearly as tragic as brain tumor no one has ever had ever. So that it can be extra tragic. I'm gonna disagree, but uh, no, I know you were being sarcastic. <laughs> so next week, we are finally getting into the good stuff with Goodbye Mr. Chips. Okay. A movie about teachers, Oof. right? Or a teacher. A, I believe, yes, a teacher. Which is supposed to be really good. Yeah. I've never seen it, but, you know. I'm hoping it's really good. Until then. This was something. Yeah, this was a bad episode of House. Yeah, House wasn't even good. No, God. The Doctor was boring. The Doctor was so boring. Why did they make this a medical drama when they didn't have any medical shit to say about anything? He <laughs> was so boring. Goodbye, <sighs> everybody. <laughs> anyway, goodbye, everybody. I'm next week we'll be more positive. I've I am sure. Even if we hate that movie. We'll we'll uh, bye everybody. Suppose we just don't talk about it anymore. 